Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit HeritageFoodsUSA.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today we're broadcasting from the International Culinary Center in Soho, New York City. And I'm very excited because I have an old friend, not a friend that's old, but an, an old friend, <laughs> and uh, one of the people that I really look up to um, for his uh, knowledge, uh, wisdom, and actual exquisite palate, Coleman Andrews. And um, uh, Coleman is the editor-in-chief of the Daily Meal, uh, a culinary website, uh, newspaper, which is uh, full of interesting and timely um, topics and what's going on in, in the food and wine world. But before that, Coleman, I don't think people understand where Coleman is in the culinary hierarchy of America. <laughs> um, he uh, hails from California, and at one part of his life, he was the restaurant critic for the LA Times. He's really had a distinguished uh, career in journalism, and he was the founding editor, uh, along with Dorothy Kalins, of Severe Magazine. And he is a renowned and highly decorated uh, cookbook author. Um, but I would say food, books about food, not necessarily cookbooks. One of my favorite books in the world is his 1992 Flavors of the Riviera. But I'm not sure people understand um, that Coleman discovered Spanish cuisine way, way before uh, Jose Andres came to this country or Bobby Flay had got, uh, had, uh, got Bolo. No, Bolo, Bolo. Um, in 1988, he wrote a, a seminal book called Catalan Cuisine, which to this day is an incredibly relevant um, book if you are in into Spanish cooking. And he has won the top awards in the industry. In um, He won for his country cooking of Ireland, the best cookbook of the year by the James Beard Foundation. It also took honors as international book at both IACP and JBF. He was the person chosen by Ferran Adria to write his authorized biography a few years ago. And I'm happy to say that uh, Coleman's decided to write his own memoir, <laughs> <laughs> which came out last year, My Usual Table. So this is your unusual table today, Coleman. Let's, for the people who haven't had the um, chance to read the book, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So we kind of want to understand a little bit who Coleman Andrews is. And um, so tell us, I say that you grew up in California. It was Los Angeles, right? How did, and you, you kind of had a... a a restaurant background as a kid, didn't you? Like your parents took you out and tell us about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say I grew up in restaurants, which doesn't mean that my parents owned restaurants, but that uh, basically my mother, who came from New England, um, was not a representative of the fine regional cooking of New England, let us say. Uh, <laughs> Uh, basically, uh, this is not very gallant of me, but basically mom couldn't cook. Um, my dad worked for movie studios back in the days when uh, he was a screenwriter and back in the days when writers like actors and everyone else were under contract to studios um, instead of sort of being freelance and, and going all around. Um, and he made a, a pretty decent steady salary uh, at various movie studios. So he had the wherewithal, and she couldn't cook, so they went out to restaurants. And probably five nights a week, at least, they were out in a restaurant somewhere and, uh, in Los Angeles of the 1940s and 50s and into the 60s uh, when we moved up to Ojai, north of Los Angeles. But uh, they just liked that whole world, and they took me with them from the time I was probably literally a babe in arms and, and uh, certainly... I remember as a toddler kind of toddling around various of the famous restaurants of L.A. of the period, like Chasen's and the Brown Derby and uh, that, whole, uh, that whole group of restaurants. So I grew up feeling very comfortable in restaurants. And I would say that my, my approach to food really came from being a diner, not from being in the kitchen, not from you know, being at my mother's elbow while she cooked. Uh, probably would have been a dangerous place to be. And uh, <laughs> I always say I was about 14 before I knew that uh, beef wasn't gray inside, um, so and that's that's how I that's my orientation toward food is from the uh, from the dining table. So when you were ten, which was your favorite restaurant? When I was ten, probably my favorite restaurant would have been the Brown Derby because I liked all the uh, the walls were covered with caricatures of uh, all the famous stars of the time and. It always seemed like kind of a glamorous place to be. A little bit later, I don't remember exactly what year it opened, but when um, a restaurant called The Traders, which was actually at Trader Vic's, uh, they later changed the name to Trader Vic's, opened in the newly constructed uh, Beverly Hilton Hotel, uh, that became my favorite restaurant. And I, I got very, uh, very much seduced by the whole South Sea Island idea and the uh, so-called, you know, the sort of imitation Polynesian food that uh, Trader Vic's served. So for people who might not know the Brown Derby, it was a restaurant that was shaped like a, a hat, right? And you, had, you sort of walked into this hat? That was the original Brown Derby, uh, which was uh, down in the Wilshire District across from the famous Ambassador Hotel where the Coconut Grove was. And that was a restaurant I don't think I ever went to. Uh, it, it was indeed shaped like a hat. Um, the one that we went to, there were two actually. There was one in Hollywood which uh, I remember particularly vividly. And then there was another one in Beverly Hills where we also went, and that lasted a little longer. The, the one shaped like a hat, supposedly the, the uh, if I remember the story right, somebody uh, said to the man that ended up opening it, uh, this food is so good that you're cooking, uh, you know, people would probably uh, eat it if you served it in a hat. So he said, I'm going to serve it in a hat. And he constructed this huge brown derby. Uh, it was quite something to see. I, re I think I remember it from TV in those days. So when let's go back to when you're 10. Aside from eating in restaurants, I mean, what were you into? Were you into sports? Were you into writing? What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Were you a surfer out in California? 
I wasn't a surfer. Um, I mean, we spent a lot of time at the beach. Um, we had a pool at home, so we, we swam a lot. And I think, um, you know, my my father, being a writer, as I say, he was under contract to movie studios, and he always had an office in the studio, but he also always had an office at home. And uh, either on weekends or when there were periods when he between uh, studios he'd be working for one and then another one and maybe he'd be off for a few months in between he wrote at home he sat in the sort of one end of of the bedroom and had a big desk set up and uh, sit there on a typewriter uh writing away and i guess i just kind of grew up thinking that's what that's what guys did you know they uh, guys just sat in, in at the typewriter i figure i always said if he had been out in the backyard uh, working on the car, I'd probably be an auto mechanic by now, you know. So, so I, I mean, I got a little, uh, it wasn't a toy typewriter. I mean, it actually worked, a little sort of kid's typewriter at probably the age of, I don't know, I guess seven or eight. And I think I wrote a short story um, that very short. It took one page, of uh, but uh, what was it about? Um, it was about a, if I remember, it was a. Uh, like a mad scientist who it was kind of grafting science fiction onto a western it was a mad scientist who operated out of a box canyon in utah or someplace i don't know and i don't remember what happened uh the twilight zone exactly exactly (laughs) well so through high school what was like what was it like in la going on high school i mean we live it looked like the idyllic life everyone moved to california didn't experience winter like new york this year what was it like uh, being in high school well, um, yeah, we, the, the weather certainly was, was something uh, that we all appreciated, I think, uh, although I appreciate it more now that I've lived on the East Coast for 20 years. Um, I actually went to high school in Ojai, which is um, about 90 miles north of L.A., um, a little bit south and east of Santa Barbara. Um, and uh, that was a, it was a, a boys' boarding school, Catholic prep school. So that was a very particular uh, kind of experience. Um, I mean, I had the uh, the LA school experience in grade school, and and uh, you know that was it was very relaxed, and you didn't have to worry about bundling up, and you know didn't have to worry about slipping on the ice, and you know. Did you have a car? I didn't have a car. No, um, I didn't have a car until well, it was kind of late. Uh, to driving, I didn't have a car in high school. No, I had a, I had a car when I moved back down to LA and was uh, was living on my own. I got an old rattle trap, uh, kind of rust colored VW Beetle, the, the kind that had the, uh, the there was no gas gauge and there was a little handle you had to turn over. When you ran out of gas, you turned the handle over and it gave you another gallon of gas. So you could get to a gas station. You're losing your California mystique for me here. I, I mean, I thought it was California. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, really. So, uh, so where'd you go to college? Um, well, I went to a lot of places for college. I actually, I, <laughs> I, um, I was trying to hit every institution of higher learning in LA County, but I didn't quite make it all. But I, I went to uh, right out of high school. I went to Loyola U, which is now Loyola Marymount in Westchester near the airport, uh, the LA International, and. Um, is that a parental decision, or what, what was, propelled you there? Everybody else was going? Um, I, I mean, I, I think it was uh, my parents wanted to send me to a Catholic college, and that was really the the, the one in, in, in the area that uh, would have made sense. Otherwise, I would have had to go up to Santa Clara up in Northern California or something. And um, I was an English major, and I, in fact, turned out to be more of a radio major because the uh, college had a radio station, which went out 
not, not just around the college. I mean, it had a fairly good reach around L.A. And I kind of just fell in love with doing radio and doing, I was a, you know, played, a, played jazz records and had a talk show and stuff like that. And I didn't spend much time studying. So uh, after a year, they said I probably wasn't ready for college yet. And maybe I'd like to, uh, you know, consider my other options. So I stayed out of school for about a year and a half to two years and worked various jobs. And then I went back to L.A. City College and then uh, one semester, Cal State L.A., where one of my teachers was a guy called John Hospers, who later was a presidential candidate on the Libertarian ticket. Um, did, did not sway me uh, into being a Libertarian. And then, then I went to UCLA, and that's where I graduated from with, uh, with two bachelor's degrees in history and philosophy. And they used to let you do double majors. I think I was the last year they let people have double majors because they wanted to get them out into the world. And I remember my faculty advisor said the only thing he could think of that was worth less than a bachelor's degree was two bachelor's degrees. He thought I was completely wasting my time. So anyway, but, but that, was, that was great. UCLA was great. Let's, uh, let's dwell on that a little bit. Today, you know, there's all of this rush to, for people to go to college and get trained to do something. And that good old liberal arts education, uh, I was an English major, too. What, what's your feeling about getting a philosophy degree and a history degree? And how has that shaped you today? Well, I think it very much depends on what uh, a, a student wants to do with his or her life or thinks he or she wants to do. And I knew, and I, I don't know how I knew this, but I, I didn't know exactly what I would end up doing uh, with my life, but I, I figured out early on that whatever I did, it would not reflect what I did in college. I thought I should go to college because I knew uh, the... I knew it was important to have a degree, to, to have graduated for most anything I did. But I could have sort of, I, I felt, anyway, my feeling was I could have studied anything I wanted. And in fact, I was a philosophy major because I thought that sounded interesting. And indeed it was, sometimes bewildering. Uh, but then my electives uh, were mostly history. So I realized I had an, almost enough credits in history to get a, another degree, which is why I stayed on another semester and, and did that. But I, I never thought of it as a career path. And certainly, if uh, if I had thought of college as preparing me for a career, probably wouldn't have made much sense to be a history. No, but or do you? But maybe. do you feel that it's rounded you and made you a better person today, a better professional today? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, uh, and I, I think with uh, with history, particularly, um, I, I really got into the idea of researching, and I used to love going to the library. Uh, obviously, before uh, the internet, uh, going to the big UCLA uh, research library and just spending hours and hours there and and track. You know, I'd, I'd go find something on the shelf, and I'd then my eye would stray to something else two shelves over that had nothing to do with what I was uh, looking for. And I said, "That looks interesting," and I'd take that down. And you know, it's kind of like it's the same thing that happens when when people surf the web today when they one link leads them to another. Except it was uh, physical books and. Um, I think my approach to food very much with uh, to writing about food in Sever, uh, with Catalan Cuisine, and with, in fact, with all of my uh, cookbooks has been to incorporate history and, and cultural references and, uh, you know, to present the food not as just a, a formula uh, from, a, from a kitchen or a test kitchen, but to put it in some kind of context uh, of of the culture it comes out of. And, you know, I, I really honestly believe this may be a silly romantic idea, but I honestly believe that 
if you take the time to understand a little bit about where a dish came from and why it has this ingredient but would never have that ingredient, maybe you can ultimately make the dish a little better, even if you're you know, not from that culture. Uh, maybe if you understand a little bit about it, uh, the results will be a little closer to what they should be. Well, we're going to take a break right now, and we'll be back in a minute. Hello out there. It's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway Butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and today my guest is Coleman Andrews, who's the editor-in-chief of the Daily Meal, um, an online newspaper, uh, culinary. How do you describe it? I'd, I'd call it a, a mega site, really, uh, food and drink mega site. Our, our sort of motto or slogan is all things food and drink, and uh, it's really, um, a, it approaches the subject from every angle, and that's what really makes it distinct from sites that are more restaurant-oriented specifically or recipe-oriented, like All Recipes or the Food Network and things like that. Uh, We have a lot of recipes. We have a lot of restaurant coverage. We also have drink coverage of everything from cocktails to wine to coffee to bottled water to whatever. Um, And then we have entertaining uh, coverage and and, uh, health and nutrition coverage and travel that's related to food. So really anything theoretically, uh, if we get the site up to where I'd like to have it uh, be, theoretically, if you have any interest in food or drink from any angle, um, it should be the first place you come every morning and you kind of look at the site and then that will lead you off in other directions and you know you'll know uh, it's like you know if you're in the world of finance you you look at Forbes or or Wall Street Journal or something every morning and this I'd like this to be the place you look uh, if you're in the food or drink world in any way whether as an amateur or professional or anything else so we'll get back there later. Um, and really, you, you probably have your pulse on trends more than anybody. So maybe at the end of the show, we can go and revisit that. But tell me, um, how did you start your professional uh, career? And weren't you up for a Grammy Award at one point in your life? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I said, my, because my father was a writer, I thought uh, you know, I should be a writer. And uh, when I was in college, I got student loans. Of course, uh, for living expenses and tuition. Of course, tuition in those days was 
probably a couple of hundred dollars a semester at UCLA. Um, but um, to make some additional money, I started trying to uh, write magazine articles. And I, I would go to the library and get these uh, writer's magazines and um, they always had uh, what people were looking for, and it'd be something you'd never heard of was looking for you know nothing about. And I'd say, well, okay, I can look up something about that subject. And um, uh, so I, I wrote for magazines with names like New England Galaxy and the Ford Times and East Europe Magazine <laughs> and Mankind Magazine, and all all these kind of. Uh, marginal things, and I, you know, I'd get a check for fifty dollars, or a hundred dollars, or occasionally three hundred dollars, and so that was how I started writing about things in general. And I've always really been interested, in a, kind of an avocation in music. And uh, there was, you know, my parents had a lot of records, and, and I, I listened to old seventy eights and things. And then I just, at every stage of my life, I really I can remember, you know, listening to the local R and B station. Uh, under the covers after I was supposed to be asleep uh, when I was a kid. And I, I just loved the music. And so I started trying to write about music. And there were underground newspapers that would take stuff from anybody. I didn't get paid or I got paid very little. And so little by little, I got more involved in the music world. And I actually started working for a record company at one point for Atlantic Records as the assistant publicity guy. And uh, I wrote the first press releases for Bette Midler, Jackson Brown, people like that, and then... Uh, Did you get to meet them? Um, no, I didn't meet either of them, um, although I, I, did, I did know uh, the man who's now Bette Midler's husband uh, in another context. He was a, a um, kind of performance comedian at that point. Uh, in in L A, um, but I, I got to know some of the other uh, some of the other performers. But um, so I was kind of around the world of, of music, and I did a lot of freelance um, liner notes and artist bios and things. And uh, one of the things I did was a United Artist had bought uh, a lot of the old. Well, they bought the Blue Note uh, record label, great jazz record label, and they were releasing um, a multi. Record. This is LP's uh, set of old Miles Davis stuff from the early '50s, and um, I wrote extensive liner notes. I mean, it was probably six, eight thousand words uh, worth of liner notes. What uh, is a liner note? Well, yeah, they, they, those have pretty much disappeared. Uh, even the with the CD era, they kind of disappeared, and now they're completely gone. But liner notes were the text on the back of a record album that uh, told you something about the, the record inside. And, and it was typical with jazz or classical, not a little less with, uh, with rock uh, music, but, um, you know, you'd, you'd have a kind of an essay there that would say something about the music, and then it would take track by track and say, on, on this uh, track you hear so-and-so solo, and, and this guy sounds a little tired, and whatever, whatever, you know. And um, so... These were, it was basically a, a long essay about the music that was contained on the albums, and it was nominated for a Grammy. And I. The liner notes. The liner were, notes were, yeah. they're, they're, that was a category. I don't think it is anymore, but it was a category best liner notes. How and, old were you then? Oh, I was probably late 20s or something. Wow, you and Mick, Mick Jagger up for yeah, Grammy exactly, Awards. Exactly. Uh, this is really great. And I, I lost to uh, Sam Zamudia, who was uh, Sam the Shaman the Pharaohs. 
And he did he write his own liner? He, notes? he wrote his own liner notes, much shorter than mine, and it was a, a kind of a very heartfelt uh, little thing about his background and how he'd been a poor kid and how he got into music. So you know, I, I didn't begrudge him that. But did you go to the gala? I did. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I definitely did. That was fun. Yeah, it was it was lots of fun. Yeah, and um, in fact, the master of ceremonies that year was uh, a great figure who just died a few days ago, Stan Freeberg, who was a great uh, comedian and, and ad man and satirist and all. He was very, one of the funniest people alive at that, at that age, I think, at that era. Anyway, so that was, uh, yeah. And then, then what happened with the music business is t- uh, it started becoming increasingly commercialized. I think there was all this energy in the kind of uh, British invasion era and, and before that the R&B era. And I, I just felt it started to get uh, a little, I don't know, diffuse and, and not as interesting to me. And uh, at some point I said, well, the other thing I really like is eating and drinking. So uh, maybe I could write about that. And I talked myself into a column in a local underground newspaper uh, called The Staff. And uh, Do you want to explain to our listeners who might not know what an underground newspaper is? Yeah, I mean, I guess there are still some around. uh, They're probably called alternative press now, but so it would be uh, usually a weekly. Uh, They existed in probably every city of any size in America that dealt with uh, local cultural issues, and they were usually pretty political and usually fairly leftist. Um, and they were the ones that would tell you about how the pigs ripped off the guys, you know, and pigs busted the uh, uh, the nice, uh, peaceful hippies and, you know, tell you all that stuff. And and, um, and along with that, have coverage of what was going on in the music scene and theater and, and films and so forth. So, um, I mean, the, the classic best-known example really is that's really what the Village Voice is or was. Uh, it's, of course, changing all the time, but... Um, but so it, it was a. Um, it, it wasn't exactly prime time. Uh, it was off, off Broadway, maybe, or off, 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 off Broadway. Um, but um, I actually got paid. I got paid thirty-five dollars per review, which usually just about covered one meal out for two people at, at that. Uh, was this in L.A.? This was in L.A. So it was sort of uh, the less expensive restaurants, or thirty-five dollars would. In- you could eat in a in a pretty nice restaurant for thirty-five dollars for two in those days. Um, you know, have a couple glasses of wine. And, and uh, yeah, that was um, that was a, a fair price for a meal. And so I, I wrote a lot of uh, restaurant reviews for them, and then for the LA Free Press, which was another um, underground. And at some point, Lois Dwan, who was the longtime restaurant critic of the LA Times, a very sweet woman, um, I guess had read those columns. And I met her at some event, and she said, "You know, I'm going on vacation for three weeks. Would you like to write my?" column, this was in the Sunday uh, LA Times, uh, while I'm gone. And I said, yeah, sure. And so I did. And that's kind of, I think, my first uh, break into the big time. And I subsequently did that uh, whenever she went on vacation for a few years. And then I was never the, the main restaurant critic for the Times, but they had a Friday section where it was kind of a secondary review. And I did those. And then I changed from doing reviews to doing kind of restaurant news columns and so overall, I probably wrote for them for about 10 years uh, about restaurants in various ways. So you became a restaurant aficionado. and well, I was already a restaurant right, Yeah, that's true. That's true. But, uh, mm. but a, criti- a, a, a critic. So has restaurant criticism changed um, since those days? And how, how, I, we know restaurants have changed. But how has restaurant criticism changed? 
Well, I mean, the the big change, of course, is that everybody's a critic now, and everybody has a. I mean, everybody probably was always a critic, but just to their, you know, their friends or their or their boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or something. And now everybody's a critic, uh, with the potential to be read by the entire world uh, through all the various uh, sites that encourage uh, people to comment on restaurants. And, you know, actually, the, I mean, this started, it was pre-internet, really. The pioneers in this whole idea were the, the Zagats, and, yeah. you know, that uh, had the, the inspiration, if you will, that uh, rather than one authoritative restaurant critic, that people would be more interested in hearing what a whole bunch of people thought about a restaurant, and, you know, presumably their peers or, you know, people with similar tastes. Um, and then... Obviously, it was tailor-made for the Internet. And, and so when, when you have Yelp and TripAdvisor and, and all these m- many other sites that uh, allow people to criticize restaurants. So it, it's, I wonder sometimes if the profession of the restaurant critic is, uh, is doomed. Um, I mean, certainly in, in New York, there are still uh, the New York Times and then other, some other people uh, out of New York that whose reviews still have a tremendous amount of uh, influence, and they do in some cities, but I think much less than they used to. And, you know, there's this whole idea, which and I think there's pros and cons in, in both directions. Uh, you know, d- does, the, uh, does the mass audience know more about whether a restaurant is, is good or bad or the food is good or bad than one person who has uh, been doing this for years? Um, I can see arguments in both directions, but that's that's the biggest change. Uh, Do you think it's made um, restaurants better having a more democratic voice and every day? You know, the New York Times or the L.A. Critic comes in once, and then maybe you don't see them for five years. Where Yelp and uh, a lot of these other bloggers, it's every single day. And if something goes wrong, do you think? I, it, it puts the restaurateur in a, in a worse spot. It's, it's like a Broadway show every night getting reviewed. Um, well, I, I think, uh, first of all, most critics um, at the uh, credible publications, anyway, don't just go once. They'll, they'll go three times, maybe four times. Uh, and there is a certain amount of re-reviewing two or three years down the line in some publications. So um, that, that's one thing. But the problem with the biggest problem for me, and I'm sure this occurs to everyone with um, review sites like like Yelp or TripAdvisor or whatever, is the vast uh, variance in people's reactions. I mean, you literally see, you know, uh, five stars, best meal of our lives, and we couldn't get enough of the uh, whatever, whatever. And then this two, you go down two reviews, and it's one star. This place is a sham. You know, they don't know how to cook, and the service was terrible, and it's the worst experience we've ever had. So the advantage of the professional critic is if you read a professional critic weekly or monthly or daily or whatever, oh, that person's tastes a little bit. So you know that, oh, this guy, you know, this guy always gives too many points to fancy French food, and I don't like French food, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pay attention to that. So, I mean, you, you can calibrate against it, but you can't calibrate against these uh, crowdsource sites because they're all over the map and you don't know the people so you don't know maybe this guy that says it's a terrible restaurant is a complete bozo or maybe he's a competitor or maybe he's whatever that's right that's an excellent point well on that note we're going to take a break and we'll be back welcome back 
This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today we're broadcasting from the International Culinary Center. And my guest is Coleman Andrews, the former founding editor of Sever Magazine, and presently the editor in chief of the internet site of All Food and Drink to All People, The Daily Meal. So let's let's jump to your your book authoring, because how many books have you authored now? Um, I have written eight books about food. I also co-wrote and co-edited three other cookbooks with uh, my colleagues at Sever. And then there were all kinds of miscellaneous restaurant guides and things that I contributed to before that. But I say eight books about food, really. Do you like writing books? I hate it. I hate writing. It's terrible. It's an awful way to make a living. I'm serious. It's it's hard, and it's I mean it's it's mentally and physically hard, and I don't really like writing. I just it, I just feel compelled to do it, and I like having written once I've done it. But I do you like editing? Sure, and you get to make other people do the work. You know, you, you can look at what they've done and say, take it back and do it again. And you know, here's uh, here's what you did wrong. You know, and I, yeah, that's the easy way to do it. I mean, uh, writing is really hard. I, I find. Anyway. Do you have a discipline of when you're take, you're you're telling me now that you're taking on a new book? So, do you have like a discipline of time a day, or how much you write a week? Do you have some rules? No, I'm really just uh, I write when I when I have time and when I can. And right now, with a full time job, um, in effect, it means that I have to write on weekends and I have to write uh, at least a little bit in the evenings or in the mornings um, before or after work. Um, when I did not have a full time job and was working on books, and I actually had turned out three books in about a year and a half uh, when I wasn't doing something else, um, then I pretty much got up in the morning and started work and then I'd break for a few hours midday and then I'd work again in the afternoon till about six or seven and I actually always used to find that my most productive period was from maybe five to seven in the evening I, I don't know why but it's like I could kind of stall and, and get distracted earlier in the day but that was the time when I was really focused cocktail time exactly right <laughs> well cocktail time was at seven so I knew if I got through that then uh, yeah then I could have my cocktail. Oh. So um, of all the books that you've written to date, do you have a particular favorite? I like Flavors of the Riviera, which is one of the least known ones, um, just because it was a really interesting book to research and just has a lot of very kind of obscure stuff in it and a lot of recipes which uh, nobody will ever want to make, but I thought it was important to... Um, to record them, as well as a lot of recipes people would want to make. And I, I think part of what I was reacting to uh, when I wrote the book was an idea of quote-unquote Mediterranean food uh, that people tend to have in America, which really had nothing to do or very little to do with the way people ate in at least this part of the Mediterranean, which was the Ligurian coast, the Italian Riviera, between, uh, well, actually, start, starting with Nice, yeah. which had traditionally looked toward Genoa, not toward uh, Provence, not toward Marseille or Avignon. And uh, so from Nice all the way to the border with Tuscany down by La Spezia. And that's a, a beautiful stretch of coast. And I, I mean, I fell in love with that area, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do a book there. And I found the food fascinating, but you, you go inland a few miles, and 
the diet is completely different from what's on the coast. And, you know, this, we have this idea of this beautiful piece of fish with a, strewn with a few herbs and uh, drizzled with olive oil and, and fresh salads, and that's Mediterranean food. And historically what people ate, uh, especially inland, was uh, a lot of chestnuts and, um, you know, uh, whatever they could find wild, wild greens and things. They, there was no fish inland at all, and even on the coast there wasn't a lot of it because... If you uh, were a successful fisherman, uh, you sold your fish, you didn't eat it yourself, or you ate the trash, trash fish, so-called. Um, but the Mediterranean is, is comparatively fish poor compared to the North Atlantic, for instance. And, um, you know, there were people that, that's why people developed things like why they, there was such a market for uh, salt cod, for instance, from uh, Scandinavia, because you could have that on hand. And if you went out in your boat and you didn't get any fish, you'd have something to eat when you got home. Uh, so um, you wrote the bio, uh, the authorized biography of Ferran Adria. And how do you get into the head of a, someone like a genius like that? Yeah. It wasn't uh, – he made the distinction. He, he's, he didn't want to consider it an authorized bio. But, I mean, in effect it was because he knew I was doing it and he cooperated. And he said, the, you know, come and uh, spend as much time as you want at El Bui. And he you know, answered all my questions and put me in touch with, with many, many people. But – um, you know, he's a, um, a very interesting character, and he's there's uh, a part of him that is just absolutely brilliant. And then there's there's things that he says sometimes, and you wonder um, if you remember who Chauncey Gardner was. Uh, who was the hero of uh, being there, played by Peter Sellers, uh, who, who was a, uh, a kind of a naive who. Uh, would say things that people suddenly started taking as brilliant, and and sometimes I I hear something he says, and and I say, wait, wait, that doesn't what? Why are people thinking that's incredibly creative or wise? And then he says something else, and you say, okay, well, maybe he knows what he's talking about after all. And listening to him talk, uh, and I've I've heard him a lot at, at various conferences and so forth. Um, you know, he's all over the place. He's he's somebody that. Uh, uh, he he thinks three times or ten times as fast as we do, um, and so when he announced he was closing El Bui as a restaurant, and he had he knew what he was going to do instead, he was turning it into this foundation, and he had very specific ideas, and people would ask me about, oh yeah, that's very interesting. He's going to do that. I said he's not going to do that. There's no way that what he says he's in you know in 2013. Between now and 2015 or 2016, he'll have you know 3,000 new ideas about it. He'll he'll keep he'll keep evolving. He'll keep thinking of new things. Um, it, I mean, it's exhausting to try to keep up with him. But he's also a, a very funny guy, and he's very sincere. I mean, one thing that uh, astonished me was he he loves keeping notes. He, he has notebooks and he has uh, scraps of paper everywhere. And he he in fact there was an exhibition of his uh, drawings here in, in New York fairly recently. And I was looking up on the bulletin board at, at his uh, at his studio there, where they do the uh, experimentation, or they did uh, in in Barcelona, uh, the off season where they develop new dishes. And he had all these different things, you know, the, these dates I'm going to be uh, traveling in Tokyo, and these dates here, and these dates I'm doing this. And and I saw there were all these spaces blocked out, and it said um, creativity. And I said, wait, you, you schedule creativity? And he said, oh, you have to. You have to schedule time to be creative. And I, I found that an astonishing idea. And I, I mean, because to me, I mean, insofar as I ever do anything creative, 
Uh, it tends to you know, occur to me when I'm taking a shower or when I'm you know, driving somewhere or when I'm, or, or when I'm sitting at the, at the computer or whatever. And I mean, I can't, I can't imagine saying, okay, I'm going to block out this amount of time and, and just try to be creative. But maybe that's why uh, he's so creative, because he does that. <coughs> I don't know. Was it just blank time, do you think, so he could think? I, I think that was the idea, that, that he would give himself time that he didn't have other obligations, yeah. yeah. I think that's... Yeah. So um, tell me about your new book. Um, the new book is called My Usual Table, and uh, the subtitle is A Life in Restaurants. And uh, it really uh, it was a memoir. It was published uh, a little, little less than a year ago. And um, it basically tells, it's a, well, it's a combination of a kind of a, a memoir, autobiographical memoir, and um, something about restaurants around, well, around the country and uh, in Europe. Um, each chapter is a restaurant. And I realized when I was, uh, and a book editor asked me at one point if I'd consider writing a memoir, and I I said, yeah, maybe, but I didn't want to just do, you know, I was born, and then I went here, and this is where I got interested in food, and this is what Like this interview, well, right? Well, no, but, <laughs> well, no, but, but, um, uh, so I, I tried to think of a, of a kind of structure, and I realized, uh, as I, I said earlier, I mean, I'm, I've been going to restaurants all my life, and I realized that without really bending the facts, uh, I, I could say that there was one restaurant that was at the center of my life at virtually any period of my life. So there, there was one restaurant when I was a kid that was the, the main restaurant in my life, which was Chasen's. And then when I got a little older, it was Trader Vic's. And, and you know, and, and it evolved when I was in high school in Ojai. It was a place called the Ranch House in Ojai, where we went all the time. And kind of, I had a lot of memories of that place. And, and really all, all the way up to um, the time I was working on the uh, Ferran Adria book, uh, uh, when it became El Bulli. And um, so it's it's sort of autobiography threaded through stories of restaurants and where you know the origins of of all these restaurants, m- most of which are now unfortunately no longer around. A uh, few of them are, um, and you know why they were important uh, to me, but also why they were important to development of food in America and, and Europe. So I think there are so many um, young. Um, want to be writers, successful writers out there. And you described earlier um, that you had the opportunity to write for underground press and you just got your typewriter at seven years old. Is it much harder today to break into the writing profession? You are a big-time editor and have been for a long time. Where, what have you seen in the arc of writing for professionals and young professionals? What do you think if someone's interested in writing, what they should do? Um, and how, how has it changed from your experience? Well, I, actually, it's much easier now. Um, I, I used to tell when people would come to me you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago and say, how do I uh, break into writing? How do I become a food writer or whatever? And I'd say, well, you, know, you have to find some little local publication somewhere. You'll have to write for free probably for a while and you, you know, get some clips together and then uh, little by little you build up uh, uh, reputation and then you can take it to somebody else and maybe somebody will pay you. But now uh, it's uh, a matter of a few dollars and uh, probably not even an hour's worth of time to set up your own blog. Uh, you can be published instantly by yourself. 
Um, then, of course, the issue is how, how you get people to read your blog, but there's all kinds of different ways to do it. And we see right and left, we see people who were bloggers who were getting book deals, and in at least one case, even a movie deal. Um, and, uh, so, you know, your, your voice can be published immediately. Now, it's an interesting thing because I, I, I thought at first when this phenomenon, the phenomenon of blogs started happening, I, I said, well, you know, these are going to be people that have no, uh, no editor, so they're just going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot of nonsense, you know. It's going to be, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to be crafting their prose. They're not going to be forced to think uh, logically and to really uh, develop their ideas because no one is, is, uh, is behind them there. But what I found... And there's certainly exceptions, but I think there's a lot of, uh, of life, of vitality and authenticity that you get in many blogs that would probably, my guess is, would probably be dampened by an editor. And so you, you lose maybe some precision and some, you know, maybe there's fine points that uh, you could argue with as a stylist or as an editor, but, but you get something better in many cases out of blogs. So I think there's a lot of really good energetic writing uh, that's, that's being published, self-published on, on the net today, uh, on the web today. Um, and I, I think that's, that's a great thing. And so, I mean, somebody that wants to be a writer, uh, you can be a writer instantly. And then it's up to you what you do with it and how you build that and, uh, you know, how you, uh, how you turn that into a job or into a, into a book or into a, whatever, a magazine gig or something like that. So we're getting, we're winding down. We only have a couple minutes left. Any more mountains for you to climb? <laughs> well, um, I mean, the biggest mountain, you know, my stage of, of life really is, you know, getting up in the morning, I guess, and, yeah. you know, feeling, uh, feeling like in, uh, my, my brain is still working and my, uh, you know, but no, I don't want to, it's a little extreme maybe, but no, I mean, I, I think, uh, there, there's a lot of stuff I, um, I still want to do. There's, there's books, um, a number of books I want to write that, um, some of them I may have a hard time selling, so I may have to just do them. Uh, like what? Oh, I mean, I'd I'd like well a, a nonfiction book I'd love to write is a book about the Venetian Lagoon, uh, not necessarily a food book, although there'd probably be some food elements to it. But I'm fascinated by all those islands that are just off the you know, the, you know hundreds of yards or or a little more than that, but but not very far from this. Uh, very, you know, this completely unique tourist trap city, uh, as gorgeous as it is, of Venice. But then you go off on a boat into the lagoon and you find everything from, you know, the largest Armenian library in the world probably uh, is on one of the islands and a, an incredible monastery on another one and vineyards on another one. And, and there's, um, it's a fascinating part of the world. I'd love to do something about that. I'd also, um, I've been trying to write a novel, uh, I say trying, I mean, I haven't looked at it now for three or four years, but um, trying to write a novel, um, I don't know, a bunch of stuff like that. And, you know, I, I want to, uh, there's a lot of parts of the world I haven't traveled. Uh, when I was talking to someone, um, I, uh, it's very, very uh, unlikely it'll happen, but talking to someone about doing a, a project on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, that would have to do with uh, food in a more academic context, a museum context. Um, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of stuff to do. Well, well, thanks for taking the time today, and um, it's always a pleasure. And we'll 
we'll be looking forward to your next book on the British Isles, I think. Okay, so thanks for coming. Thank you. And I just want to do a shout-out to our producers, uh, Jack Inslee and Robin Cohen. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.